Hello and welcome. Whether you meant to or not, you found Noob's Book Club. I'm Sean, Noob of All Trades from Two Generations Gaming, and in this series I am reading and reacting to Jurassic Park. After a month-long layoff and the attempt to get two episodes a week, right now we are just weekly. This is the third episode. I did an episode last week, and I will try to get back to the Wednesday and Saturday schedule that I'm used to once things settle down a little bit more. In this episode, I'm going to finish up the chapters from the second iteration, and I will then give my thoughts on the new characters that are introduced, and then I will give some thoughts on the science, and then I will give my what I liked least, what I liked best, and then some final thoughts on the chapters. Hammond. The chapter starts with Gennaro's secretary helping him to pack for the trip. She admonishes him for waiting until the last minute to pack. He says he's in hot water with his family because the trip is causing him to miss his daughter's birthday party. Ross again reiterates that they need to stop any problems on the island at all costs. Burn it down if necessary, he says. Gennaro meets Hammond on a jet and they exchange pleasantries. Creighton describes Hammond as so short that his feet don't touch the ground when seated. After the pleasantries, the story gets told about Gennaro's history with Hammond. Apparently Hammond developed a pygmy elephant that he used to show off to fundraise, and Gennaro helped him. And, of course, behind that cute cat-sized elephant, Hammond hid some key details. First, the thing acted like a rodent. Not surprising given its size. Second, it was prone to illness in the winter. He had discouraged people from petting it and cursed every time it sneezed because of these reasons. Perhaps the biggest secret, though, is that they never replicated the feat. Mini Dumbo was one of a kind. In spite of this, he raised an absurd amount of money. Gennaro helped. Most of the money came from Japanese investors. They're the only ones with the patience to wait for the return on the investment. Back on the jet, Gennaro earlier mentioned how short Hammond looked. He tried to humanize the man by comparing him to a child. Now, though, Gennaro changes his tune. Reminded of the con, he no longer sees a childlike innocence in the man. Instead, he recognizes him for the manipulative bastard that made him miss his kid's birthday to show off his island resort. That leads to a talk about that very resort. Gennaro asks if it's ready. Not quite, Hammond defers. But things are mostly running on schedule. Over 200 animals and 15 different species. State-of-the-art technology. That cuts down on costs by requiring less staff. Yes, some delays. Accidents, one or two deaths, but all minor issues. You'll see when we get there. The park will prove itself. Choteau. They pick up Grant and Sadler, who wait impatiently for them. While they understand, they don't have to like it. When they meet Gennaro, neither of them is impressed. They ask how long the trip will take. Gennaro tries to give a realistic answer, but Hammond cuts him off. 48 hours. Tops. Target of opportunity. Back at Biosyn parenthetically, located in Cupertino, because of course it is, and parenthetical, the board of directors awaits a quorum. Someone asks Dodgson if they actually need a quorum. He says yes. Oh, then this must be serious. While they, and ultimately we wait, Creighton takes some time to talk about the current state of bioengineering. The focus shifted to pets and entertainment, things like Hammond's mini elephant. The business will prove to be very lucrative indeed. And ultimately, that's the reason for the meeting. They watched InGen through all of it. Funded digs, amber collecting, 
Super Computers Island Acquisition, and they still couldn't figure out the end game. Now, InGen invested and liquidated a company that produced a polymer that mimics the shells of bird eggs. Those at the meeting still don't understand. Dodgson lays it all out for them. Dinosaurs. They're cloning dinosaurs. One of Dodgson's quote-unquote skills is reverse engineering. He quote-unquote acquires technology and works backwards to figure how it works. Then you can copy that tech, parenthetically with modifications if necessary, and parenthetical, to compete in the same market. And it takes far less time and resources. He used that quote-unquote skill to recruit a disgruntled InGen employee. This proved difficult because they needed someone with the ability to access the embryos that they need. But he found just such a patsy in Dennis Nedry. Now all Dodgson needs is approval from the board. And there, the reason for this meeting. The board, without an official vote, agrees to proceed. Airport. Dodgson meets Nedry. He brings a briefcase of money. Before the conversation and exchange, Creighton discusses the developments that led to the world of Dodgson's and Nedry's. When they talk, Nedry only cares about the money. He assures Dodgson that he will get the job done on his end. They just have to take care of theirs. East stock and bring the cash. Malcolm. And we get introduced to yet another, parenthetically, the last, and parenthetical, principal character in the book. He introduces himself, Ian Malcolm. I do maths, parenthetical. Personal note, I have a new way to introduce myself that might not get as many pity reactions, and parenthetical. Grant gets a chance to talk about Malcolm as a quote-unquote new math guy that works with nonlinear equations and real-world applications. Stuffy old dudes say they suffer from a deplorable excess of personality, quote-unquote. He then goes on to discuss his wardrobe with Sattler. He goes with a Lego Batman, parenthetical, black and gray, not necessarily dark and parenthetical, motif, because it saves time. Time is money, and who has the time or the money to care about that shit? Nope. No time for fashion or sports. Hammond huffs. Malcolm impishly moves there. Topic to his supposition that something will go very wrong, and Hammond will need to shut it all down. Hammond huffs again. Malcolm brought receipts. His original research. Hammond leaves at this. Grant, Gennaro, and Malcolm discuss his paper. Grant thumbs through it. Gennaro tosses it aside and asks for an explain-it-like-I'm-five version. Starts off with nonlinear equations and strange attractors. Gennaro hasn't a fucking clue. So Malcolm goes with the short, short version. Starts with classical physics. Then he explains where classical physics fails. The old cannonball versus weather argument. This moves on to the quote-unquote butterfly effect. That leads to the response that it's all random then. Then the counter response, yes and no. We look for the order in the disorder. So what about the park failing? Well, a prime example, like the weather... Animals in a zoo seem like a simple and easily explained system, but many variables and tiny variations in both can lead to possibly unexpected results later on. And you're confident? Oh yes, absolutely, totally. Isla Nublar slash welcome. The Isla Nublar chapter gives information that they picked up Nedry. It then glosses over the trip to the island and describes in great detail the arrival and landing. While I appreciate the detail and applaud the effort, I won't go into it here. You'll just have to read it for yourself. But at the end of the chapter, they finally reveal the worst-kept secret in the book. The party comes face-to-face -face with a dinosaur, more specifically, an Apatosaurus. They all respond appropriately, with awe, surprise, and wonder. To his credit, once their emotions dwindle, 
Grant finds himself both accepting the dinosaur and studying its behavior after only seconds of being introduced to it. They enter the park under a crudely painted sign that reads, Welcome to Jurassic Park. And now for the characters introduced in this section. Hammond. I already gave my first impression of Hammond after a soft introduction. Crichton does his best to soften my stance. Again, in my younger days, it might have worked, but I have nothing but contempt and ire for these rich pricks. I say again, screw Hammond. Ian Malcolm. Only in a Michael Crichton novel are the heroes paleoscientist and a mathematician. Okay, Indiana Jones is an archaeology professor, and he puts them all to shame. Nevertheless, I appreciate Crichton turning the adventure genre on its side. I watched The Strain a couple of months ago, and the action hero on that one was a CDC worker. Sorry, back to Malcolm. I can relate to him on some levels. The thing about his wardrobe, it doesn't take my students long to realize that I own about half a dozen polos and two pairs of khakis, and I mix and match them to make my daily outfits. I don't agree with him on sports. I rather enjoy sports, but his irreverent and fun-loving approach to math? Yeah, that's all me. Gennaro, Dodgson, Nedry, and Ed Regis gets a mention as well at the end of the section. We get more on these characters. We get the most on Dodgson through flashbacks and interactions with the board and Nedry. Nedry's character comes out in that meeting. All we get from our heroes about the man is that he's fat and sloppy and ill-tempered. Gennaro mostly stands in as the everyman in the sea of expertise and academia. And now a quick discussion about the science. The main science resolves around Malcolm in the discussion of chaos theory. As always, when he writes about science, Creighton makes the concept accessible without talking, parenthetically, writing down to his audience. He mentions the butterfly effect, parenthetical, I suppose you must when talking about the topic, and parenthetical, but doesn't use it to dumb down the discussion as often happens. Instead, he goes on a clear and concise explanation with appropriate language. Words like, quote-unquote, initial conditions and, quote-unquote, small perturbations bring great joy to this old mathematician's heart. Bravo. Now for what I liked least. I already said this, but the arrival to the park just dragged on for me. I understand the need to build suspense. After all, you're introducing dinosaurs. You want the audience to be amazed when it finally happens. While not necessary, it helps to postpone the reveal and throw some additional suspense like a helicopter landing on the side of a mountain. Two things. One. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Just because I understand something and appreciate the reason for it doesn't mean I have to like it. B. In all honesty, the helicopter ride wasn't all that suspenseful. Sure, being on the copter in that situation, I'd feel differently. But in no time did I get any inkling of danger or even awe at what was happening. Creighton tried his hardest by mentioning the anomaly of the thick fog and Malcolm's comments about the pilot's skill. So, that part, it just didn't work for me. I might have gone with them glimpsing something through the trees... Then again, as I often say, Creighton is a New York Times best-selling author. I'm just a frustrated blogger and podcaster, so he probably knows better than me and definitely made the right choice. What I liked best. Okay, let me set this one up. Malcolm achieved a bit of cult favorite status due to Jeff Goldblum. Never mind that the guy is a grade-A creep. I mean, there's a conversation with Sadler where he comes on to her while discussing his theory. Then the, parenthetical, for some reason, shirtless pose that became... Parenthetical, for some reason, immortalized on a Magic the Gathering card. If possible, he's already come off as even creepier on the book. He immediately makes a comment about Sattler's legs. Never met this woman, nor a companion, and he opens with that. I wanted to slap the taste out of his mouth. So I don't condone any of that behavior. With all of that out of the way, I like Malcolm's characters the best. Where Crichton couldn't make him unlikable enough to overcome his flaws, he succeeded, parenthetically, so far with Malcolm. 
I see just enough of myself in his excitement and passion for math that it resonates with me. No, it's not enough to allow me to forgive his bad behavior. However, I have more faith that he will do better. He may be forced to when Sattler kicks his balls in, but that counts as far as I'm concerned. If you learn and can do better, that's a win. And my final thoughts on the section. Pivotal chapters in the book introduce the rest of the preliminary characters, other than Malcolm's casual sexism, a decent job. At the end, a mention of actual dinosaurs. Granted, the lead-in felt overlong and awkward, but again, I get it. Overall, not as strong as some of the earlier sections. I think that's just the curse of high expectations, though. Creighton is still one hell of a writer, and I look forward to the rest of this book. As always, thanks for listening. You can find us if you haven't already at www.twoguysgaming.net. We have articles. I just did an article on the Marvel Snap season for Planet Hulk this month, and I'm going to do one on the Deck of Many Things, which came in the mail the other day. I think I might do an unboxing video for that one, too, while I'm at it. It might come tomorrow. It might come this weekend when I have a little bit more time. We'll see. There's also another podcast Chris and I haven't recorded for Two Guys Gaming in December. We didn't get a chance to because we were both sick. And then we talked about doing it maybe this weekend. We'll see. I have a long weekend. He doesn't. But if we get it recorded, it'll be up by next week. There's also a link to our socials, including our YouTube, which has an unboxing video for the 2024 calendar. It also has the first week or so of that calendar posted. I'm starting to get a little more reaction from people. I got an actual comment from somebody, like a helpful comment, not a sarcastic comment. And we picked up another subscriber. I will be back with this series next week. I will talk to you then. That was Tigger. Bye, guys. We are.